Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Just ahead on the program, more inflation data coming our way. And what is the Fed thinking? I'm John Tucker in New York. I'm Caroline Hepke in London, where we're looking at European companies to watch this quarter. I'm Doug Krisner with a look at the Chinese clean energy companies focused on coming to the U.S. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. The IMF meets in the nation's capital to get a take on what to expect. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Hi, everybody. I'm John Tucker, and let's start today's program with the Federal Reserve and the economy. We're going to be getting a report on consumer prices and also getting the minutes from the Fed's last FOMC meeting. Joining me to uh, raise the curtain on all this, Bloomberg Global Economic and Policy Editor Michael McKee. As always, Michael, thank you very much for being with us. What should we be looking for? You've told us we're all data dependent. <laughs> It's going to be interesting to see if the data, the Consumer Price Index, actually moves the needle for anyone at the Fed as far as their May 3rd meeting, the next meeting that's coming up. At their last meeting, they put out a new summary of economic projections and dot plot and basically said, we still think that rates need to go above 5%. 5% is the top of the range right now. So they seem pretty married to that idea. It would probably take a lot uh, of change in the CPI for them to back away from it. Um, but uh, we are expecting a bit of a decline on the headline rate uh, that would take us, uh, well, actually, it's more than a bit because you go from 6% to 5.2%. A lot of that is base effects, but it's it's going to be a major headline number. Okay, remind everybody person. what the, they're aiming for a rate of inflation 2%. of 2%. Yeah, and they're not We're getting, still a long way away. Yeah, that, that's Can gonna, they at some point just say, okay, maybe it's 3%? Uh, no. <laughs> and the reason they don't want to do that is because then nobody will believe them that it's 3%. They'll think, well, okay. Oh, they'll have a change, credibility you problem? Could change, yeah. You could change it to 4%. But the uh, the headline that will grab people's attention is obviously a big drop in, in the year-over-year uh, -year number if it goes to 5.2%. But according to economists surveyed by Bloomberg, we're going to see core inflation rise. 
to 5.6% from 5.5. So core uh, inflation, you got to remind everybody, it is the weekend and, you know, we're preparing to (laughs) eat food and stuff like that. Core inflation is the inflation that really matters because the other stuff like gasoline and Fuel, well, energy costs, that goes up and down all the time. That goes up and down, and obviously we saw in the last week big movements in oil prices after OPEC uh, right. announced a production cut. Uh, and, you know, Fed officials tend to look through those things because they do go up and down, but the average American does not because they have to fill their tank. So if we do see gasoline prices going up, I mean, that's that's going to be a worry for the Fed because they can't do anything about it. You can raise interest rates all you want. It isn't going to produce more gasoline. Uh, so they do look at the core, and they're looking at core services uh, without housing. They do X housing because uh, we know that housing has taken a long time to uh, incorporate the idea of uh, lower rents, uh, rent increases have been fading but it takes about a year to get into the data so that's going to start hitting and they're they're looking at services because services is the biggest part of the economy and it includes things like you know going out to a restaurant the the waiter or the waitress bars um, all that stuff and, and a lot of people in you know accounting or uh, radio uh, things like that would be service industry jobs um and for many of those categories, it's still been hard to find workers. We've seen strong hiring, and labor costs are the biggest part of a service industry uh, budget. Okay, so, so if they can't find people, they've got they got to, to attract more. people by yeah. paying more, and that's And, and that's inflation. the inflationary concern. So the Fed is going to be looking at that. They'll be looking at all this data for signs of a slowdown. They want to see that they're making incremental progress. Okay, they're going to be looking for signs of a slowdown there, but... I'm told that's stickier inflation. Is well, there, right? are, there, are, there are two kinds of inflation. <laughs> well, there are many kinds, but one that would one responds to uh, Fed tightening. Like um, we know that uh, people buy fewer cars when interest rates go up, and and housing prices uh, generally start to flatten out, if not go down, uh, when mortgage rates go up. But there are other things that are called sticky prices that take longer to uh, adjust. And anything to do with labor uh, takes longer to adjust because it's uh, you don't basically go into your office and say, well, we need to save money, so we're going to cut your salary. I mean, you're either going to be laying off workers, which we haven't really seen in huge numbers yet, or you know, you're going to have to find other places to get those savings from. Yeah, we do see those headlines crossing almost on a daily basis. This big company or that big company that you've heard of uh, cutting workers. That, you're telling me, hasn't filtered through or really isn't it big enough to yet. make a difference? Uh, a lot of people who are being laid off are either in jobs that are in demand. If you get laid off at one tech company, you might get hired at another uh, reasonably quickly. Or people are getting severance. And when you get severance, basically you're not eligible for jobless benefits until your severance runs out. And so uh, you're seeing people um, who may move into the uh, jobless claims area and show up as unemployed still off those books. So it's been hard to tell the impact of all these uh, layoff announcements. Also, the layoff announcements, uh, if you're laying off a lot of people, uh, there's a law that says you have to give them 60 days notice. And also, uh, it may take you longer than that to do your layoffs. Uh, so uh, 
the general view of economists is we're going to see the impact of all this later in the year. Okay. Uh, I'll remind everybody that the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, has a couple of mandates. One is price stability, keeping the rate of inflation at, you know, uh, something reasonable, like you said, 2%, and also um, full employment. But those two things are kind of contradictory, it sounds like you just told me. Well, uh, they there are times when <laughs> they're in opposition in the sense that to, to bring inflation down, the Fed has to slow the economy. And to slow the economy, the Fed has to basically put up with the idea that you're going to see people laid off and unemployment is going to rise. Now, their thought at the moment is that right now, because labor is so tight, that we're below what the normal level of unemployment is because there are always people switching jobs uh, in between jobs and there are people that come out of college and they haven't found a job yet. Uh, and they think that number is around uh, four uh, to four and a half percent, and we're at three point six percent. So, at this point, they're thinking uh, they have some room that won't bring the economy down if uh, if that unemployment rate rises. So, um, are things different this time because we had the pandemic? Everything's different this time, in the sense that we're not sure how everybody's going to react. Uh, and all of the dynamics that normally come into play in a recessionary time haven't this time. We, we don't have a inventory overhang or something like that. Um, what we have is, is consumers who are still spending because they got a lot of money from the government during the pandemic. And uh, there was nothing basically wrong with the economy going into the pandemic. So it's hard to know exactly what the cure is going to be for all this. And the Fed is doing its best to try to bring inflation down. But as long as people and the economy feels good, uh, it, it's harder to do. And the models don't work because we've not had a pandemic like this since 1918. All right. You've been speaking to uh, the people at the central bank who make all these decisions. What have the Fed officials uh, been telling you that could possibly move the needle? Well, I, the needle is an interesting question because the needle right now points uh, on Wall Street to four rate cuts or three to four rate cuts this year because they think that we're going to go into recession uh, and inflation is going to fall fast and the Fed's going to have to rescue the economy. Fed officials don't think that at all. Uh, they've been repeating the mantra uh, to me all week that they need to uh, keep interest rates high. And uh, we spoke with um, Susan Collins and uh, of Boston and Jim Bullard of St. Louis and Loretta Mister of Cleveland. They all make the case that we need to raise rates at least one more time and then leave them there for the rest of the year. So it's going to set up a clash between the markets and the Fed. We will probably see rates rise at their next meeting, May 3rd. And then if the Fed wants to go on hold, uh, the market's going to be pushing them to start cutting. And uh, we're going to be all watching the data for signs of who's right. Do they know something we don't? <laughs> well, not know something, but they're probably focused on things a lot more than we are in terms of uh, what are the possibilities uh, for this economy. Because, as I said, the models don't work. So they're trying to figure out what's the most likely path for the economy. They will tell you, uh, and it makes a lot of sense, that they will react to whatever happens in the economy. But at the moment, from what they can see, they need to leave interest rates up uh, high 
until they get a much clearer signal that inflation is going to continue falling. Mike, thanks a lot. It's always a pleasure. Uh, Bloomberg's Global Economics and Policy Editor, Michael McKee. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, which European stocks you should have your eye on this new quarter and why? I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Up later in the program, why Chinese solar panel makers think the industry is about to shine. The first European stocks had their worst March since 2020. There are a lot of stocks and key valuations to watch in the second quarter. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. John, defensive and growth stocks have benefited from a rotation in European equities recently. Recession worries have resurfaced. For more, I'm joined by Bloomberg Intelligence's Tim Craighead. Tim, great to have you on the programme. So you've picked out then for the quarter to come 10 stocks to watch. And a number are European companies, so this really piqued my interest. One is a bank, but that's a bit surprising, BBVA. Yeah, so BBVA... Um, <laughs> you, you would think it's a little crazy picking a bank in the midst of a banking crisis or a perceived banking crisis. But this this is in line with a number of the 10 ideas where the market seems to be focused on the wrong thing. And with BBVA, the focus is on Turkey, uh, which, you know, it, it has had a, a big exposure to over time. But it's only down to 7% or so of the business. Um, we think that they're well funded on that front, and it's it's overblown. At the same time, they've got a big Mexican business where loan growth is quite robust. They've got clearly a big Spanish business um, that is benefiting from higher rates driving higher net interest margins and profitability. Bottom line is, we think they're going to be positively surprising on earnings um, and uh, in ongoing other fundamental metrics. Okay, so that on BBVA. Europe is also really trying to balance out the huge US Inflation Reduction Act, thinking about the energy transition, of course, and so you pick Vestas. Is that the reason? Indeed. that That is absolutely behind it. Both European spending on energy transition as well as the U.S. And you take those two combined and we think uh, there is, shall we say, a tailwind, um, sorry, that that um, is behind Vestas. And yet, if you look at consensus expectations, order growth and revenue growth aren't particularly robust. Mm. Um, there's been a bit of a lull in the wind Um and we think it will pick up. And there's positive surprises in top line and earnings growth going ahead. Okay. And then just lastly, out of these three European businesses that we're focused on, there's Capgemini. Indeed. So 
think again, similar to the BBVA, what's the market focused on? Well, in technology, it's uh, there's a tech downturn. You know, there's been pressure on semiconductors. There's thoughts of cutbacks across a number of elements of technology. Um, there's concern about economic risk. Mm. But um, companies are strategically transforming into things like cloud computing and digitization. That's across all industries, and it's strategic. It has to happen. And Capgemini is one of those IT service companies that's very exposed to these strategic transformations, not so much the cyclical, more cyclical implementation of, of sort of basic technology. And we think, again, uh, the market's underestimating the opportunity here for Capgemini. Yeah, and I mean, when you look at tech, it's flipped from being last year's laggard in Europe to actually being the kind of market leader in 2023. We don't think of there being many tech, big tech companies in the UK, but interesting that you put Capgemini in that kind of basket. So is is tech in Europe something to watch in the next quarter? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of parts to this. Um, and it's a very different story, I would say, than, say, tech Broadly, if you think about it from a U.S. perspective, mm. you know, in Europe, we've got essentially Capgemini and SAP and yeah. software and services. And you've got some big semiconductor companies, ASML, Infineon, STMicro. Um, the the semi, has, semi business has its own cyclicality to it. Infineon and STMicro are, are very well positioned into China. Um, thinking about what's going on with with you know the chipification of autos and everything else, ASML is absolutely the core of next generation semiconductor manufacturing. Uh, you have to have it, and all of this we think f- has fed into this last year's story of higher interest rates putting pressure on multiples. This year, there's now increasing talk about a Fed and ECB pivot at some point, that brings the pressure off on multiples and these things can can move back up. So that's an element of, of that exposure to Europe that's positive. In the US, it's far different. It's more internet, very high multiple mm. stocks. Um, and yes, those two have had a reprieve on the multiple pressure because the change in you know Fed thoughts. Frankly, we're a bit more suspect on how quickly the Fed's going to pivot. And it's a different business from the standpoint of the internet-oriented businesses in the U.S. So more interested in Europe, maybe still a little less interested in, in the U.S. Well, I wanted to ask you that. Why do you think that sentiment has tilted more towards Europe? It does seem that way since the start of the year that there's a bit more... Um, favorability versus for, you know, for European shares and perhaps for the US? Is that because recession seems more imminent in the US? Or how would you read it? Yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting question. Um, part of it is valuation. Mm. There's no doubt. Part of it is that um, uh, the, the idea of where we are at from an economic cycle um, last year, there was a lot of concern about energy. There was a lot of concern about Russia impact on Ukraine right at our doorsteps here yeah. in Europe. And not that that's gone away yet. Clearly, it hasn't. Um, but we suffered so much on energy last year that is now cycling through with lower energy prices, notwithstanding OPEC's recent announcement, um, that I think that's a little bit of yesterday's story in the U.S., I think there is still ongoing concern of how much do we see wages play through. Mm -hmm. Um, 
where is the economy going and um, it, it, it creates a different cycle. Yeah, absolutely. So just less, maybe less bad news than, yeah. than we had for Europe last year. Um, having said that, stocks do look now in Europe actually pretty close to a lot of year-end targets. So I guess my other question is, do we just end up treading water in Europe? Yeah, I think we could be having this conversation in another three months and we could have gone up 5 to 10% and down 5 to 10% between now and then. Okay. Um, my last word for luxury stocks because they're so dominant in terms of the European market as well. I think you can't avoid talking about them and also just because Bernard Arnault has now joined this tiny handful of billionaires worth more than 200 billion US dollars uh, in the last few days. Um, I mean, the, the luxury space in Europe still seems to be a big, big strength. Uh, and look, I think this plays into China reopening. You know, mm. go back to those 10 ideas. Two of the Asian ideas, which I won't belabor here, are China reopening stories. And I think luxury goods here um, is as well. Uh, and, you know, if you think about big themes of this year, You've got the interest rate cycle. You've got the economic cycle. You have geopolitics between Russia, Ukraine, now the U.S. with their own internal politics, China, U.S. tensions. But a big item that's just sort of unadulterated positive is China opening back up from an economic perspective. Um, and part of that is uh, unleashing consumer spending. And the Chinese, whether it's domestically or when they travel, buy luxury. And, you know, the, the European luxury goods names are in the sweet spot of that cycle. Okay, so we end on a positive note then, thinking about European stocks for this quarter. Thank you so much, Tim, for being with us. Bloomberg Intelligence's Director of Research, Tim Craighead, with a few of uh, his ideas around the stocks to watch here in Europe over the next few weeks this quarter. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. That's beginning at 6 a.m. in London, 1 a.m. on Wall Street. John. Thanks, Caroline. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, some major activity in the Chinese solar panel industry. I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. with your global look ahead of the top stories for investors in the coming week. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a look at why the International Monetary Fund meeting is being so closely watched. 
But first, after the U.S. passed a landmark climate bill that supports local clean energy manufacturing, some of China's top solar panel makers are rushing to tap into the industry. For more on what's happening, let's go to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host, Doug Krisner. John, it's not just solar panel makers. Several of China's leading renewable firms are joining the rush to open factories in the U.S. As an example, the Chinese company that makes the world's largest wind turbine, Mingyang Smart Energy Group, is exploring whether to establish production and research facilities here in the U.S. Now, the driver of this movement is last year's Inflation Reduction Act, championed by the Biden administration. It includes $374 billion in new climate-related spending and it has drawn, needless to say, the attention of China's world-leading renewables companies. Let's take a closer look now with Bloomberg's Dan Murtaugh. He is a Bloomberg Asia energy reporter. Dan joins us from our studios in Beijing. There's a lot to talk about. It seems a little ironic right out of the gate that the Inflation Reduction Act really has a goal of cultivating a boom for U.S. clean tech. But at this point, China seems to be the world's number one supplier of clean technology. Let me begin by asking where Beijing may be in allowing these companies to develop some of their operations here in the U.S. It's a good question. Uh, there's obviously been a lot of tension between Beijing and Washington in recent years. Um, but at the same time, Beijing wants its, uh, its clean tech energy industries to, to grow they, they see them as one of their proudest achievements, developing these, uh, these massive supply chains that can produce power generation to, to, to sort of wean the world off of carbon. So uh, at the same time that, that Beijing is nervous about Washington's intentions, they want to see this industry grow and prosper. And so you know, they're in constant communications with uh, the heads of these massive companies about, you know, what opportunities are there to, to go overseas, you know, what technology they can bring with them, you know, how to, how to sort of maintain their China's uh, role as a dominant supplier of this clean tech industry, while also allowing the firms to sort of uh, broaden and diversify their own supply chains. Yeah, talk about domination. When it comes to solar panels, I think we can agree that China really dominates production globally. But there have been cases where that production has been stymied from shipping to the U.S. because of a series of trade disputes. There have also been, there have also been allegations of uh, human rights abuses. Is it necessary that the U.S. has to do business with China when it comes to solar panels? How long does it take to build out a, a manufacturing process for, for these uh, devices? You know, if you were going to, just on the technicalities of it, it would probably be about a year and a half to two years to build a full supply chain. You know, most of these factories, uh, Chinese companies get up and running in about nine months. Um, the, the key a sort of raw material for all of this, uh, an ultra-refined form of silicon known as polysilicon, those plants take about 18 months. So if, if you know, you had unlimited resources and, and were able to, sort and, you know, access to the best technology, you could put a, a supply chain together relatively quickly. Uh, but of course, the, these are very complicated supply chains. There, there's multiple steps that go into it. You, you take sand, you heat it into, into um, silicon, you refine it with, uh, with nasty chemicals into the polysilicon, you melt it into these like long bricks and then slice those into ultra-thin squares that you then wire up into solar cells that you then paste together into, into the solar panels you see you know, out in these giant uh, desert farms and on your rooftops. And you need a different factory for each one of those steps. And you know, what China was excellent at is in putting it together in industrial policy that, that sort of 
made sure that those steps all went together so that there was supply and demand matched. Uh, and so what the U.S. is going to struggle with is, you know, if, how, if you build a, a plant to sort of slice those squares, are you sure you're going to get the raw materials to be able to build them and stuff like that? And so that's going to be the uh, the trick for the U.S. to build a, a supply chain that will be able to compete with China. I mentioned wind turbine technology. That's another part of this story. Where is China in uh, wind turbine production? China is the the world's leader now. If you look, uh, Bloomberg NEF just reported its 2022 production numbers, and uh, Goldwind, China's biggest company, overtook Vestas to be the world's biggest wind turbine manufacturer last year for the first time ever. Uh, four of the top seven turbine manufacturers are in China. And up until recently, you know, China has uh, a, a very big domestic wind market. And so these companies just sort of built uh, turbines for Chinese demand and didn't really mess with the outside world. And, and, you know, Vestas and GE and Siemens, they were seen as the sort of world technology leaders. But now Mingyang has, has launched the world's biggest offshore wind turbine. Uh, you know, the, the quality uh, gap has, has narrowed. And now these Chinese companies are looking to, to take market share away from the European and U.S. giants. So whether it's solar panels or wind turbines, are they looking to really penetrate beyond the U.S.? You mentioned, uh, you know, Europe and other parts of Asia. I mean, it sounds to me like it's a pretty aggressive strategy of moving offshore. Absolutely. You know, you know the, these industries, uh, not only is there room for these Chinese companies to grow and become bigger and bigger, but, you know, China sees this as also sort of, you know, the uh, maybe the next step in their Belt and Road Initiative or their Global Development Initiative to, to be able to bring infrastructure and energy to the world. And in this time, uh, as opposed to the last Belt and Road, which was, um, you know, quite coal and, uh, and oil intensive, this time would be a little bit cleaner. So when I think of solar panels, when I think of wind turbines, I think of storage technology. Where is China right now in terms of battery technology? And is this also an area that they are looking to export. Yeah, China, uh, once again, leads the, the world in battery manufacturing. It leads the world in lithium processing to, to create the battery materials. And it's definitely looking to expand globally. CATL, the, the biggest battery maker here in China, has been uh, involved in this tie-up with Ford to make lithium iron phosphate batteries, which are a sort of cheaper, less energy intensive, but also less sort of environmentally problematic technology. And they want to build a huge battery factory in the U.S. And that's obviously created uh, some some political stir. Um, Virginia's governor uh, sort of nixed a deal earlier because he thought it was uh, too generous to the Chinese side. Uh, we're looking, they're looking into Michigan right now. Uh, but yeah, the, the battery companies are also looking to, to sort of diversify their manufacturing bases around the world. And to go back to the Inflation Reduction Act and the money that's at stake right now, there are a number of people in Congress that are a little concerned here that essentially the U.S. would be giving support to Chinese companies. Is it possible to say that we could be at a point where there's so much pushback from members of Congress when it comes to allowing these Chinese companies to do business in the United States that whatever ambitions Beijing may have at the moment, those become stymied? You know, that's the big fear for these Chinese companies is that, you know, the the IRA is passed. Uh, frankly, all, all companies anywhere in the world are st- still trying to figure out the uh, T-crossings and I-dottings of the IRA. But the Chinese companies are looking at it. Their fear is that they come to America, they invest capital, they bring their own technology. And then, you know, you, you have someone like Marco Rubio, uh, who, who's voiced opposition to, to Chinese clean energy firms before, push to, to sort of change the rules midway through, 
to uh, to um, make sure Chinese companies can't benefit. So that they're they're worried about the rug being pulled out from under them. You know, right now there's no indication that that will happen, but that's the, the sort of constant fear that they're dealing with. But you know, I think about this in in you know being here in China. A lot of the way that China has developed these industries is by letting foreign companies come in and build stuff here, mm. uh, benefiting these foreign companies. My dad, uh, 25 years ago, worked for General Motors when they uh, opened their first car plant in Shanghai. General Motors benefited hugely in the first uh, several years of that deal. But you know, the, they General Motors hired locally. They they taught you know Chinese workers and executives how to to run a, a world class car operation, and now. You know, you look at China's car industry, and it's right up there, you know, neck and neck with the U.S. in terms of uh, one of the biggest in the world. Dan, thank you so much for spending time to chat with us. Dan Murtaugh there, Bloomberg Asia Energy Reporter, joining from Beijing. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. John? Doug, thanks very much. Just a hint on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. A sneak peek at the IMF meeting in Washington. I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Here come the big annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And for a look at why we're watching these meetings especially closely, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and sound on host Joe Matthew. John, the IMF meets in Washington this week, and while the cherry blossoms are in bloom, the forecast is not great. As the IMF warns, its five-year global growth outlook is now at its weakest since 1990. And it's thanks to a confluence of factors, as Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva described in an interview with Bloomberg's Tom Keen. Countries that we would expect to add to growth, frontier markets, low-income countries, are in particularly difficult place because they have been innocent bystanders right. of repetitive shocks. The COVID, uh, Russia's invasion, uh, the fact that the world economy as a whole is now less able to support the weakest members. Let's talk about it now with Bloomberg's U.S. economic policy czar. How would you like that business card? Ramsey Al-Rakabi, it's great to see you, Ramsey. Thanks for joining Thank us. Uh, do these meetings begin with real concerns about geopolitics when you consider the weakest forecast uh, since 1990? Uh, that's right, Joe. The the IMF's managing director, Kristalina Gorgieva, uh, on Thursday came out with uh, a, a little intro speech heading into the meetings talking yeah. about how uh, their outlook for the next five years is the weakest since 1990. 
one of the things they mentioned at the top was uh, global fragmentation, which is sort of a thinly veiled comment about U.S. and China uh, tensions and worries around uh, economic decoupling between the two. That comes on top of uh, these this uh, global tightening in interest rates mm-hmm. that uh, has been trying to fight inflation and sort of the impacts that, that that's saying. It's a stronger dollar, which has made uh, debt issues much more intense in emerging markets. And as we saw quite recently, it's set off some financial uh, stability issues with banking banking collapses uh, in the U.S. and in Europe. Uh, that is that is uh, sort of sending fears of, of of how a financial crisis might bleed into an economic yeah. crisis. Give us a sense of what's going to happen to Washington next week. It's going to be an absolute uh, festival of policymakers yes, and finance ministers and central bankers. Despite the pall cast by the sport, <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not looking good. But at least the weather's nice. Uh, everyone's <laughs> everyone's showing up uh, for the for the IMF. Uh, uh, hosted spring meetings. At the same time, there'll be a G20 finance ministers yeah. meeting within that. Uh, so the so, city is going to be locked down with with parties shuttling back and forth, and somehow you have to cover it all. There's going to be you know, a lot of uh, a lot of motorcades and a right. lot of closed streets, and then a lot of I'm sure uh, cocktail parties with I believe uh, all of the smart folks. Yeah. So will there be any? I mean, beyond the photo ops and the cocktail parties, will there be progress? I suspect there's going to be uh, there's going to be a, a, a theme and a mission statement. But what happens after that? Well, one of the there's there's two there's two main things that would come out of something like this. Well, there's one main thing that would come out of something like this would be at, at the G20 these communiques where, yes, the, right. where these you know these guardians of the global economy get together and say these are the challenges that we face and the way forward. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has really uh, thrown a wrench into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last couple of times they've gotten together, uh, the best they can do is say that some of us disagree on what's going on in the world and what the causes of it are because uh, you know someone like the IMF or the U.S. Treasury Department, Janet Yellen, and even Biden would say mm-hmm. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the biggest threat, the biggest impact to sure. the global economy. So there, there will be some sort of debate again around that. Hoping for progress along with big thoughts uh, next week here in Washington, D.C. Ramsey Ulrich Hobby, many thanks for talking with us today on Bloomberg. Thanks, Joe. John, back to you. All right, thank you, Joe. That was Bloomberg Sound On host Joe Matthew reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom at Washington. And you can hear Joe on Sound On weekdays, 1 to 3 p.m., right here on Bloomberg Radio. Also, stay tuned for our special live coverage of key movers and shakers at the IMF and World Bank meetings this coming week. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm John Tucker. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines coming up right now. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.